0: tool ever
1: devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the node. Science
0: is a collaborative enterprise spinning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. So welcome, everyone, <laughs> to the uh, the second installment of Beverages with Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. Um, beer with BMSIS, but of course, I'm actually not going to be presenting a beer, and last week we had a cider, so um, maybe we'll get a beer one of these times. But uh, in any case, um, it's great that so many people showed up. This is a new record. And today we have Dr. Sanjoy Sam, who's going to be giving us a, um, a very interesting talk. But to start off with the beverage, uh, what I have here, I'll try and show it to the camera. It's the, this is the Nobilo Sauvignon Blanc. It's from New Zealand. And I'm not a white wine person at all, uh, but I was in New Zealand on a vacation with my family recently, and we went. there's a lot of wineries in New Zealand, first of all. So if you like wine, you'll have plenty to do. Um, so we went to a bunch of different wineries. New Zealand, it turns out, is known for the Sauvignon Blanc grape in the Marlboro region. And it's, it's not quite spelled like the cigarette. It's <laughs> R-O-U-G-A. Is,
2: is that in the North Island or South?
0: It is on the region's on the South Island. It's on the northern part of the South Island, um, but the grapes go between both islands to the wineries, and um, so I don't even really like other Savignon Blancs, but the New Zealand Savignon Blancs um, are amazing. So here, I'll, I'll taste a little bit and I'll give you some notes. Um, now I was chilling this because we had some at uh, dinner last night, but it's actually quite quite nice. At room temperature, and um, so if you, you'll, you'll certainly be able to impress your friends if you go to a nice uh, restaurant and you know you order some chicken or some fish and you want a white wine to go with it. Um, as I said, I'm not a white wine fan, but I love this stuff. Yeah. Cheers! It's, cheers! Indeed.
1: Cheers with my it, coffee. It's
0: kind of a citrusy flavor. It's um, it's really light, and refreshing. It's great in the summer. Um, so highly recommended. Um, Very cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's all <laughs> lots of fun, you, know, you, you learn learn a little bit every time you travel. Did but you... in any case, it's uh, my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Sanjoy Song, who will be giving us our seminar for today. So Sanjoy uh, got his bachelor's with the highest honors from the Florida Institute of Technology in Aerospace Engineering. He, he then uh, moved to the University of Washington where he got his masters in aeronautics and astronautics, and then um, I guess saw the light in a sense and moved from engineering into uh, planetary sciences, although uh, we're very happy that you have that aeronautics expertise on, Joe. I'm only kidding, of course. Um,
2: (laughs) But then he got his
0: PhD uh, from the University of Washington in planetary sciences and then a a certificate in astrobiology, um, which is a really great program and a number of of people that we all know have, have gone through that program. Sanjoy is also uh, an eager traveler, he's got his pilot's license. Um, I didn't know this until recently, Sanjoy, you have your paddy Divers uh, open water license as well.
2: Yep, got that Um, a month ago.
0: (laughs) Oh, I I got that while I was over in in New Zealand, Australia, and I think Julia has heard. Excellent. We'll have to have a a BMS diving expedition. (laughs) I would like (laughs) that. And then, of course, Sanjoy is the uh, founder and fearless leader of Blue Marble Space, and so we wouldn't uh, be here doing this without him. So cheers to you, Sanjoy. Well, cheers Uh, to you guys. (laughs) (laughs) With that, Sanjoy is going to give us a uh, talk about, um, I believe the title is Coming Down the Cosmic Ladder, some thoughts Mm -hmm. on astrobiology and the divine. Sanjoy, it's all yours.
2: Cool, Jacob. Well, thank you very much for the introduction, and thank you all for coming. I really love this this, uh, seminar series, and I hope that I will trigger some uh, fun conversation. Although, uh, with a title like Astrobiology and the Divine, I'm definitely in for trouble. (laughs) I think the audience is ready with their tomatoes and taking aim, because it's a little bit of a controversial topic. But um, I will... Decided to start this talk with something more optimistic in the sense that I think it's really exciting to be an astrobiologist in this early 21st century because there is quite a bit of uh, excitement coming from ground based and orbital uh, telescopes who are scouting our skies in ways that have just never been done before. And uh, talk a little bit of the Kepler telescope. Of course, there are others such as Corot. But uh Kepler is really cool in the sense that it's it's uh, focused on a single point in the sky and looking monitoring continuously the brightness of 145,000 stars and just looking for uh, cyclical cyclical dimness in those stars which would presumably imply that a planet is coming in front. And it's been very successful at that. It has detected more than a 1,000 planetary candidates. And uh, I'm willing to bet a bottle of uh, Sauvignon Blanc from uh, New Zealand that uh, within, the, uh, within this decade, there'll be like an Earth 2.0 that will be discovered. And uh, so, what do I mean by Earth 2.0? Presumably, a planet in, in the habitable zone of a, of a star that is not our sun, so an extrasolar planet, and uh, where it'll be not too far and not too c- close where liquid water would be stable. And since, on Earth at least, wherever there is water we find life, um, we will have to seriously consider the fact that we are, uh, that we are not alone in this uh, large universe. Now the question of what it means to be human is not just something that we think about now with those telescopes, it's something that transcends history. I mean, we've all had this experience of lying in a field on a warm summer day and looking at the stars and asking yourself, you know, is there life out there? Who am I? What am I doing here? What is the purpose of life? And those are all questions which uh, don't have an answer and our civilization doesn't like those kind of profound questions that don't have an answer and I think over time, through history that's kind of the spot where uh, religion has, has come in and it has provided some comfort in the thoughts that there's some Greater being that has a name for us that gives meaning to our life, and uh, just put it up front. Uh, my personal beliefs: I'm an agnostic. I don't dismiss the existence of gods, but I don't accept it uh, blindly either. And uh, this has come through, you know, self-reflection and conversations with with friends and um, edu- my own education, as well as my strong interest in in, in history. And um, through the, through the study of history is where this concept of the cosmic importance ladder emerged. So if you have the, the handout, it's the left and most image in the handout. Just a conceptual picture of a, of a ladder reaching into the skies. And at the very top of that ladder is, is Genesis, right? Um, what Bible considers as Genesis. And uh, Genesis one twenty eight says, and I quote, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion, that's a key word here, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, you know, and, of, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So our cosmic context at the very top of this, uh, of this uh, cosmic importance ladder is very narrow, right? we have the Earth, which is probably not in a planetary sense but land and everything on it that's there for the benefit of human beings and the human mind however has is a curious one and a skeptical one and has investigated that over time to such a point where I would argue that our cosmic context has increased over time as we've become more aware of our planetary environment and In the same way, our cosmic importance has monotonically decreased. That's coming down this cosmic importance ladder. And uh, for this talk, I want to, at least this part of the talk, I want to focus on sort of the spatial awareness, but you can make a similar uh, case for our temporal awareness, right? In the sense that the the Bible gives a much shorter uh, uh, life. Span of our planet compared to what the 13.7 billion years old that uh, the 13.7 billion years old life of the universe that cosmologists tell us. And I thought it would be interesting to give a get a quick historical tour on uh, sort of what big events have made us. I would argue monotonically decrease, go down this cosmic importance ladder. So if you look at your handout, the top right figure is the world known to the i guess the greek uh, mathematician Eratosthenes? so the known world to him was essentially the mediterranean basin as well as asia minor and he calculated in the third century bc the circumference of the earth and it was really really close actually and the way he did that is that he knew that on the 21st of june in cyrene where he was from the sun would shine at the very bottom of a well and in Alexandria, which was a known distance away, there was a shadow coming from a pole. So given this geometrical uh, information, he was able to calculate the circumference of the earth, which must have been mind blowing because he knew that the dimensions of his living world was a lot smaller than what he calculated. But this sort of uh, fell off the, the record in the sense that even when Columbus sailed in the late 15th century, Uh, He had no concept that the Earth was that big. In fact, he he thought that the Earth was smaller, and then he ended up in America instead of India because he didn't take into account the Pacific and this new continent. So if we continue in time quite a bit, actually, we reach uh, 1543 when uh, Nicholas Copernicus of course presented the first uh, heliocentric theory. And uh, that means that the Sun is at the center and the earth turns around it and that's huge because now the, 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 the middle of the universe rather than being the earth, what Genesis sort of implied it becomes the sun and then the earth like other planets has no special status it orbits around the sun mm-hmm. then we move on to uh, 1609 with Kepler and uh, of course he identifies through the measurements of his uh, mentor Tycho Brahe Uh, that the orbits are in fact ellipses. Now that's another further step down the cosmic importance ladder because previously the orbits were thought to be circular, right? The perfect shape, the divine shape. And now there's this strange ellipse. (laughs) So it goes goes again against um, this doctrine that uh, that religion uh, had established. We keep going uh, forward in time and it actually accelerates quite a bit in the 20th century Uh, Harlow Shapley, or Shapley, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce his name, in 1918, uh, so that's, you know, not too long ago, 100 years ago, uh, this wrote a paper that the sun is not at the center of the galaxy, but towards the edge. But he argued still that the universe was the galaxy. So again, like, a cosmic awareness is slowly increasing, and our importance in that is decreasing, just because space is so big. And move on again to uh, 1929, when Edwin Hubble calculates the distance to the Andromeda Galaxy. Now, he was not quite right in the measurement, but it, shows, it showed then that the universe is a lot larger than our galaxy. It's, the, Milky, the Milky Way is only one dot. Move again forward in time, 1995, the, the Swiss team uh, uh, Mayor and Queloz make the first find of an extrasolar planet. Again, kind of revolutionizes the the a paradigm that you know there are planets that are orbit stars that are not our sun, and I think most one of the most humbling uh, of all these events happened in 1996 when their Hubble Hubble Space Telescope took took the deep field image, and that is the picture on the lower right of your handouts, and it's incredible because that that picture is just suppose you had a piece of paper and you cut a hole that's one millimeter. Uh, her side and hold it at arm's length and put it at the, at the sky it is through this one millimeter circle that you'd see all those thousands of dots and each of those dots is a galaxy and that just completely humbles I think even the most egoistical person I like guess <laughs> and, and so you move up to modern times, uh, the Kepler mission launched in 2009 and as, as I said before I'm pretty convinced that within this decade an Earth 2.0 will be discovered and um, I think that's a revolutionary paradigm but uh, okay so let's focus on Earth now for a second um, Darwin's theory of evolution which is kind of a misnomer because it's not really a theory, it's a fact but vernacularly it's called the theory of evolution So he showed that uh, we are intimately connected with our planet, right? We have evolved with it, not despite of it. And uh, I would argue that our rhythms of life are completely controlled by the rhythms of our planets, In the sense that we sleep at night, right? A consequence of our planet spinning on its axis. Leaves um, shed during the autumn and they're not in the winter, grow again in the spring again a consequence of our planets going around the orbit of the sun our cycles as a living being, our times, are completely coupled with that of, uh, of our planet. And in science fiction you always see aliens that have sort of the t- same time scale as we do. And I think that's the biggest assumption, right? Because I mean presumably any kind of life form that comes from a planet that is not our own will have their life evolved um with correspondence to their own planetary timescales. So they might I mean what a minute to us might be a year to them, or vice versa, right? Depending if they are fast or slower. For example, think of a let's say for the sake of argument, like there is intelligent life, say on, on a planet similar to the distance away that Pluto is on some other sun and life exists there. But they'll they'll probably be a lot slower in the sense that their planetary orbit is 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 very different. So the time scale associated with life on Earth is probably not involved, has nothing to do with the time scale of aliens. We might not even recognize uh, civilizations that have a lot, that operate on different time scale because we would be just a blur in their in the length of their life, for example. So again that's a step down uh, on the cosmic importance ladder um, just because we're so intimately linked with our planet and our planet alone. So, okay, so so far this has not really been uh, controversial or provocative, but since there is a top of this important ladder, perhaps, presumably, there is a bottom of it. So I start to think, like, well, how far down can, can we go down this ladder? And uh, what I'm about to say is probably a little crazy, and I'm not con- entirely convinced that I believe in it myself, but consider the case that i will take a sip to uh, increase the suspense.
1: <laughs> it's very suspenseful. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what if, what if the term life is a misnomer, mm. right? I mean, it has been extremely hard to define life. And I would argue that, in fact, there is no such thing as a correct definition of life. Um, traditionally, people have been defining life through its, its properties, right? So life has order cells have a particular structure but you could con- consider like a crystal right a mineral and that has a very ordered crystal structure you could define life based on reproduction right a living species can reproduce itself you could consider a mule right in our context a mule is very much alive but it cannot reproduce life is able to grow and develop but so can a forest fire life Uses energy and metabolizes, but so does so does my uh, 2006 Audi A4 convertible, right? It uses fuel and provides energy. Life responds to environments, right? But so does you know your thermometer. Life is capable of it. It evolves through it evolves by evolution, and but then I would argue a computer virus can do the same. So, finding a correct definition of life has been extremely challenging, and um, <laughs> so this is where I'm like, well, what if what if the concept of life itself is wrong? And that uh, all we are is a complex chemical system responding to hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, millions stimuli per unit time. And I'm using per unit time, not per unit second, for the reason that... Different civilizations have, might have their unit of time quite different than ours, but okay, um, this is—I know this is a little crazy—but let's let's keep on that thought. Um, I like it. <laughs> so say it again. Oh, that there's the concept of life in itself is a misnomer. Okay, there's no such thing as life. All we are is complex chemical system responding to. A, um, careful not to use <laughs> any words, but this is a podcast, that are a complex chemical system that responds to thousands, if not millions of, of stimuli per unit time, right? So on one end, you have us, carbon-based chemistry. Carbon-based chemistry is very sensitive to the environment. So in order to, uh, to survive, you know, the, 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 it, it, it needed to evolve and reproduce such that that carbon chemistry can move forward. And then on the other end of the spe- spectrum, you have things like rocks, right? Who have no reason to reproduce or evolve just because they res- essentially don't respond to the environment. Sure, they might melt or they might oxidize, but that frankly is not a big change, right? Compared to the, to the uh, environmental change that we go through, or I get, rather the environmental sensitivity that we have. Um, so, let's see let me try and regain my train of thought here Um, yeah so what causes this evolutionary pressure well I have a few of my ideas but um, one can argue again that's a difficult answer to question what pushes this evolution forward and uh, if you take a lesson through history then religion, religion has taken that spot so if we can't answer it now perhaps there's a greater force up there that pushes evolution forward, and uh, well, this goes back up to the very top of the Cosmic Importance ladder and generates an entire new debate on evolution and interpretation of the Bible, which I'm not going to go here. So uh, on that bombshell, (laughs) um, yeah, perhaps it's a good place to start, yes, no, maybe?
1: Well, cool. I would disagree I like that. with the all that we are part
2: <laughs> excellent excellent i sure I'm sure I thought you would
1: <laughs> <laughs> I definitely do, <laughs> but the rest of it I kind of agree with. I think we just don't know know. I always kind of wonder if there's like other states of complexity that are even like more complex than living systems, but we just can't even identify them, and we're on some like gray scale, but we're only like aware of like our own range and that yeah.
2: I, I like this concept of grayscale very much because that, that means like something can be very much alive,
1: mm-hmm.
2: in in the alive in in life in the sense that we understand it, or not at all. And I, maybe there is no such thing as as a black or white thing, alive or not alive. It's probably a, a grayscale. And the argument that I was making is that it's it's essentially the the raw processing power that moves you up and down that 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 scale. So we have a. Very large processing power in terms of our response to stimuli. So we are a lot more alive than, let's say, like a rock on the opposite end of the spectrum who doesn't really respond to the environment at all. Yeah.
1: Um. Yeah, I like that idea a lot. I think it's really elegant. And one of the things, like in the original life, I'm always like trying to think about like what almost life is. Because I don't think it's like, you know, a switch you turn on. It's like something that probably happened very gradually. Right. So, how do you actually identify, you know, what those steps are? No clip, but <laughs> it's no, that's, cool. that's, a that's
2: a good question. That's a good question. Are we the only two online? We have.
0: No, okay. I'm, I'm here. Actually, I was going to say okay. I, I think this question of, of defining life is quite interesting to me, and I almost tend to err towards the side of, of thinking everything is alive. It, <laughs> and there's a spectrum still. I think uh, you know, what you said about either response to stimuli, or if, if this is a measure of sentience or something. Certainly, there's something that we have that a rock doesn't. Uh, but I'm quite comfortable with the idea that stars are alive. Um, I mean, a star goes through a life cycle. There are stars that are born and they're fully convective, and they reach a mature adult stage, um, and they have a life cycle. They have an old age into you know a red giant, and then depending on the size of the star, uh, their death can be a spectacular supernova or maybe a slower decay of a white dwarf. Um, but they reproduce. Mm-hmm. The first, um, I mean, when a star explodes, it's its matter goes into the interstellar medium and forms new uh, nebula that coalesce into new stars. Um, they have genetic matter because the first generation of stars were all hydrogen and helium. So uh, all the elements on the periodic table, um, including our bodies, were made in the cores of stars. Absolutely. So. Um, the second and third, ge- the second generation of stars had new matter that was not in existence at the beginning of the universe, and the second and third generation of stars, because of that, could form planets. So, you know, in in some sense, I am comfortable with stars being alive, and the p- product of Earth and other planets around the stars is sort of a continuation of that process. So, maybe I wouldn't call that biological life. If by biology you mean carbon, nitrogen, oxygen based but I think there's certainly some living process that our biology is connected to the the stellar evolution. Um, So I I do agree with you. I think this question of defining life gets tricky. Maybe that's actually not the way to figure this out. Is not to try to define life, but maybe what separates different types of life from others and and how do we think about the variety of life in the universe. So,
2: So the debate comes whether or not a star has a conscience, right? Because presumably we, we've been told since we're kids that we have, you know, a conscious, a conscience. But is that, I mean, what does a conscience mean, right? Is that if we're super aware of the environment because we're responding to all those different stimuli really, really, really quickly, or, you know, there is something more, and that's where the argument gets heated because it's really unprovable.
0: You know, I think we use these words like conscious and intelligence and sentience, and we don't really have good definitions for them except that. We excribe, ascribe these qualities to ourselves. Yep, I agree. Uh, but but you know what is intelligent? I, uh, we can't even agree if a dolphin is intelligent or not. You know, and, and people people will fall on both sides of that debate. Um, so I mean, you have a good point. I don't I don't know. I think some of these terms are quite loaded.
1: Yeah, I agree.
2: Yeah, indeed. Um, so what do what do you think? So. So I made the argument that we're sort of going down, monotonically, down this sort of cosmic importance ladder. Um, how far down can we go? Like, have, have we reached that bottom, or is there a bottom?
0: Well, I think, I think part of it has to do with, you know, the Kepler mission, like you say, and then SETI, you know, searching for any sign of extraterrestrial intelligence in any form. Um, I mean, if we find that the universe is teeming with life and advanced life and technology that just is far beyond anything we could comprehend, uh, that would basically put us at the complete bottom of of the ladder. But um, short of that, if we find that maybe life is at least a little bit rarer, not that there is no other life in the galaxy, but, you know, maybe you don't get an earth teeming with life on every planet, and we're pretty sure of that already. That's true. That's uh, true. We look at Mars and Venus and the rest of the bodies in the solar system, uh, we didn't, you know, the canals on Mars were not civilizations, um, <laughs> there were, we haven't found even microbial life in our solar system yet. So I think we're not completely at the bottom of that ladder, and we might not be. Um, there, there are still some things I think are special about this place.
1: That's a comforting thought, yeah. for sure. <laughs> like, I would do like the complete opposite argument. And I would just say that by virtue of the fact that we keep um, being able to think on more and more cosmic scales about our own place in the universe, that even though we seem like we're going down, we might actually be going up. Because to me, it's always fascinating that the universe even made something capable of thinking about itself. And that automatically, in my mind, puts us in kind of a special place in, in the universe. But that could be very anthropocentric too, but it's just kind of an interesting idea to play with about cosmic importance. I don't know if that makes us important, but it does make us unique. Maybe not unique. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I think Carl Sagan said something to the effect of, um, uh, you know, we are a way for the universe to perceive itself. Or, mm-hmm. I think I got that not quite I right. I love
1: that quote. That's, that's one of it. my favorites. So good.
2: Yes. Yeah. So
1: but yeah I don't know if that actually makes this important or not, but I it's mean, kind of interesting to think about.
2: Absolutely. I mean, that, that goes. Out of, we can tie it back to to uh, Jacob's statement earlier. Like, is a star capable of reflecting yeah. on itself?
1: That was great.
2: Um, I mean, it has all the characteristics, like Jacob very allegedly described, of what we think alive is. But this, but again, it comes down to conscience, right? That we.
1: Yeah. You need a well, I would argue it have yourself. all the characteristics, but I'll save that for next time. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. <laughs> yes, yes. Well,
0: here, here's another wrench to maybe throw into it. If, like, what if we think about artificial intelligence? So, um, we can build computers now and robots now. So it's not such a far, you know. It seems quite reasonable to think we could build a robot that could build a copy of itself. I mean, robots build cars now, mm-hmm. so we could build an, a robot that just has a program to build. A copy of itself. Uh, It's not such a far stretch of the imagination to think that you could design the same robot in a way to analyze the design it's about to build and catch any errors and make improvements on it. So once you have that, you now have self propagating robots that can make improvements on themselves. So this is now a system that is subject to Darwinian evolution. you can speculate as to the degree of sentience and and you know self awareness that these machines could have, um, but there actually are you know people concerned about global catastrophic risk, um, and one of their one of the concerns is that maybe somewhere in the universe um, this unfriendly artificial intelligence has been unleashed. Uh, von Neumann machines, these are sometimes mm-hmm. called, <laughs> and so this is you like know. Eight. Yeah, exactly, and you know, so we don't have to get into, do we have to fear these machines, but just the idea, is this life, you know, could you conceive of a machine intelligence that uh, is subject to evolutionary pressures, has the ability to think, to make complex decisions, respond to stimuli, uh, perhaps in a sentient way?
2: Yeah, that's, that's scary and exciting at the same time, I guess.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> they must be designed by Microsoft. <laughs> yeah your goal is to convert everyone in the universe to uh MS Office.
1: Ooh, scary thought.
0: <laughs> scary thought.
2: What do you think of the of the statement that um like r- religion is taking the place where it was difficult for humanity to answer questions, right? In in, in a way to try and answer it, difficult to answer questions sort of Needed an answer, and then looked up to more powerful beings in being in and having them sort of provide those those answers.
0: Is, is, uh, oh, I, I very much think that's been a function of religion, and I think that still is, and I think that perhaps some of the reason that some religious groups are threatened by science, or at least. Maybe evolution and cosmology, or you know, it depends what you believe. So not all Christians believe that the Earth is six thousand years old, right. uh, but some do, right. and and you know, some don't believe in the Big Bang; others accept it. Um, I do think that that's where a lot of people get their meaning. I think that's a challenge for for scientists today. I was talking to an English professor here at Penn State a couple years ago. And he studies rhetoric, but he's interested in extraterrestrial life and and all sorts of topics that I'm interested in. Uh, And he said something to the effect of that, you know, I think think we need to bring back space religion. And I think what he meant by that is not, you know, worshipping the stars and worshipping the sun, but I think it's using what we know about space and what we know about astronomy and what we're continuing to learn, and garnering some meaning from that. And, you know, Carl Sagan very much did this. And that was probably the biggest part of his legacy was taking what we know about the universe and then applying it. Like, what does this mean for us as people and as civilization, as an in, as in individuals? Um, so I think that's a challenge for scientists. I, I think perhaps some of our science is, you know, irrelevant at best and maybe threatening at worst to some people's core beliefs. Mm-hmm. I don't think it has to be, and I don't think it it really even is inherently. It's it's maybe partly how we present it, and partly that we don't discuss the deeper implications and the philosophy, and, and mm-hmm. um, you know maybe some other things. But I, I certainly think conversations like this, and like you, you're bringing up, Sanju, I think that we need more of this to help bridge that gap between science and meaning in people's lives.
2: Yeah, I agree. Like it seems like a lot of the the like God takes the place. In scientific gaps, right, and I think that's that's very unsat- unsatisfying, and uh, a detriment to the power of religion, right? Religion should not be in the humans' lack of knowledge, but rather be a product of its gain in knowledge, right? So, like you're saying, like including its awareness of, of 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 beyond what's just you know acceptable to the human being, but include uh, the the stars and planets, sort kind of have this more global perspective in what religion brings to the human species.
1: Yeah. yeah, I think there's a big distinction between accepting science as a useful tool and accepting science as an explanation for reality. And I think that a lot of people don't understand, like, a lot of people are okay accepting like, the results of science, but on no means will actually accept, you know, the underlying explanations that it provides for how the universe actually works and that's where it ends up interfering with religious viewpoints. That's a good point. I like that.
0: Yeah, yeah Sandra, you, you mentioned the, uh, the genesis verse, the yeah. have dominion over the earth and dominate and subdue it. Uh, I've talked to a few uh, religious scholars and theologians, um, a lot of whom are participating in the astrobiology discussion nowadays. Um, and, you know, they tend to reject, theologians tend to reject this idea that that means that, you know, we have the right to, you know, plunder the earth and, and, you know, spoil it. And they sort of read that more as we're the caretakers and the guardians, and dominion is more of a a description of our cognitive capabilities being able to govern the garden of earth more. And, you know, so that's how some theologians are reading it, not necessarily how everyday lay. People all read, always read it, um, but one of the reasons I like the idea of thinking about everything as alive, in, in at least some sense, is if we do that, then at least for me, you know, for me, I I find more contentment in thinking of myself as part of the world rather than a separate creature that's the consequence you
2: know, of can, the world, yeah, <laughs> it's
0: the consequence of the world, right? Or one of these, you know, sentient, intelligent anomalies. Compared to you know spiders and squirrels and everything else, and humans are this unique thing, and everything else is inconsequential. You know, if if, if we acknowledge our, our uniqueness but still maintain continuity with the rest of life, for me that's very spiritually fulfilling, and, and I think you know that could perhaps be useful for Christians and without giving up their faith, just to see themselves as part of the world that God made. You know, I don't think this is that's a, a really a, a contradictory at all.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so God has a perfectly valid place in understanding our world, in a in a way that's not. Uh, what's the word? Negative to the interaction between science and religion. So. I
0: think so.
1: Cool. I would agree, but I think it's hard for people to change their worldviews. I I was reading something recently, even with like the Inquisition and in Galileo, that actually. They had no problem with the scientific – this is where I was, like, thinking about scientific tools versus explanation. They had no problem with um, his theories being, you know, accurate predictors of planetary motions or anything. So they accepted the science. But what they didn't accept was that he, his explanation of how, you know, the universe worked, that was what contradicted the dogma of religion. And I, I really think that it's really, like, the explanation like, – saying, like what you said is perfectly fine and for me it's con- perfectly consistent with like a God world view, but for someone else it might not just be what their picture of you know, God is or anything and that's where you really run into conflict. So as a scientist you can say that there's no issue there but then you actually really confront somebody who this is you know, their structure of reality and it's it's a whole nother ball game. That's true.
2: That's true. little we can do, I mean there's nothing we can do. I mean faith is faith, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can't even actually, like, really convince most quantum physicists that many worlds is true, even though if you actually look at the math, many worlds is true. So it's just, it's like, it's like where do you actually draw the line of what you accept as an explanation versus a mathematical tool? It's, it's really not clear. <laughs>
0: yeah. No, I think you're right. Although I would add to that, um, I think in the case of Galileo, According to David Greenspoon, anyways, this is based on his book, um, I'm not sure, well, David says that Galileo was kind of a prick, I guess, um, in, in the sense that he didn't do what he could have done to, you know, maybe just win over the Catholic Church, maybe, you know, smooth, not not to compromise his beliefs and his knowledge, but to maybe say it in such a way that was more presentable to them. I yeah. mean, there's something to be said for tact, I think. And, and other people have been less well, hello there. threatened by the Catholic Church.
1: Speaking <laughs> Catholic, of which.
0: Yeah. Um, but you may be right. You know, even if you say things nicely, you might not be able to, uh,
1: <laughs>
0: to win everyone over.
1: Yeah, I think that's more of a psychology question. It's like, how do we actually build, you know, the realities we perceive and how do you actually change those worldviews? That's a really difficult question.
0: I mean, I think it's someone like Rich Dawkins, and I don't think he's really doing much of a service at all to help bridge the gap between science and the public. I, mean, I think he's I He's kind of doing a disservice. The, the only thing he does is he... He tends to rally people that already agree with him mm-hmm. and, and add fuel to that fire. Um, but you know, if you publish a book called The God Delusion, <laughs> you're really not helping reach out to people who believe in God.
1: Yeah,
2: Yeah, and I guess then it makes sense that there are the people who have put faith, the religious faith first, become so defensive because they're being brutally attacked, frankly, with such publications. Right. But that makes sense. I wonder if there's a way to bring everybody back to the same baseline and then build from that. But I won't even know where to start.
0: <laughs> well, I think this was a good start right here. You know, yeah, this is Really good discussion. I think um, we'll put it up on iTunes and um, maybe a couple people will listen to it and, and walk away inspired.
2: Yes.
1: Yeah. Yes. Thanks, Andre, cool. That was
2: great. Oh, you're welcome. This was fantastic. Um, so. Keep uh, up to date for the latest for the next uh, installment. Should we set a date and time now?
0: Well, it's the same time. I think it's the first Thursday of December. Okay. Uh, and at the same time as this, the so two p.m. Eastern, and um, do the math for whatever time zone you're in. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and Sarah,
2: you mentioned you were interested in uh, in speaking.
1: Yeah, I can do it next month.
0: Cool. All right. Awesome. So wait,
1: what was the date again? Sorry, I have to put it on my calendar now before I forget. The second? Or the first?
0: It's the first so Thursday. I'm pulling up my calendar here. That Which would be the, the first? The first. The first, the first. Okay.
1: yep. All right, excellent.
0: That's the week before AGU as well.
2: Okay. Well, postcat podcast listeners, uh, Dr. Sarah Walker next week, <laughs> next week, next month, for another fascinating <laughs> conversation. Um, Remember, you must be over 21 to enjoy the Sauvignon Blanc, and if you do enjoy it, do so
0: responsibly. It looks good.
1: Well, thanks, Nadjoy, for
0: a great conversation. That was excellent. Thank you so much for coming, guys. Take care. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye.
2: Science replaces private prejudice with publicly
1: verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives.